Well, at this time, let's turn in our copies of God's Word to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy Word, beginning in Romans 3, verse 1. What advantage then has the Jew, or what is the profit of circumcision? Much in every way chiefly because to them were committed the oracles of God. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. As it is written, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, What shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. Certainly not. For then how will God judge the world? For if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? And why not say, let us do evil that good may come? as we are slanderously reported, and as some affirm that we say, their condemnation is just. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous. No, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped, and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight, for by the law is the knowledge of sin." But now the righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ, to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness because in His forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded 
By what law? Of works? No, but by the law of faith. Therefore, we conclude that a man is justified by faith apart from the deeds of the law. Or is he the God of the Jews only? Is he not also the God of the Gentiles? Yes, of the Gentiles also. Since there is one God who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith, do we then make void the law through faith? Certainly not. On the contrary, we establish the law. May the Lord bless the reading of His holy word to us this morning. Amen. Romans chapter 3, focusing our attention in verses 3 and 4. Paul has concluded his refutation of Jewish unbelief. The self-righteous theology of the Pharisees that boasted in their own self-righteousness as they perceived it. Ignoring their hypocrisy, ignoring the fact that they, they studied the Bible, they listened to the Bible, but they didn't do the Bible. They didn't obey the Bible. They didn't believe the main point of the Hebrew Bible, which is to point to the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. He deals with that in chapter 2. He talks about the idea that if you simply have the outward sign of the covenant without the inward reality, if you have circumcision without a circumcised heart, or, or we might say if, if you have baptism but you never come to, to trust in Christ for the cleansing away of your sins, at the end of the day, it means nothing or worse than nothing. There's a judgment that comes for those who forsake and despise these privileges. And verse 1 he says, what advantage then has the Jew? What's the point of being a member of the visible church of the covenant community? What's the point of having that outward sign of circumcision, giving it to your children, or baptism in the new covenant? What's the point of these things? Are they meaningless in themselves? He says, well, I guess in themselves, apart from Christ. Uh, but there's a great benefit, much in every way. Because these privileges, this sign of circumcision, and this inclusion in the covenant people of God included the Word of God that went alongside the sign. The truth of the Gospel of free grace and the righteousness of the law of God all of these blessings and benefits were committed to the Jews, the oracles, the ordinances, the Word of God Himself. And at this point, he begins to address some of the objections to people who say, well, there's a problem with what you're saying. You're saying this outward circumcision, this membership in the covenant, Paul, you're saying that it's an advantage, it points to Christ, and if you use it in that respect, it's a blessing, but if you don't, you're judged, and we, we object against that. We have a problem with saying that those who are circumcised could end up in hell. Those who are gathered with the visible church could end up in hell. We have a problem with you coming to us, Paul, and preaching in our synagogues and telling us that the wrath of God is revealed against not just the Gentiles and their ungodliness and unrighteousness, suppressing the truth, but it's revealed against us 
who have the sign, who have the ordinances, who have all of these outward tokens of God's covenant, we object to this, Paul. He says, verse 3, beginning to anticipate these objections. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. And then he quotes from Psalm 51, as it is written. This is David confessing his sin, repenting of his sin of murder and adultery and deception and laziness, all the sins that came to a a climax in that situation with Bathsheba and Uriah the Hittite. David confesses his sin, and then he says, that you, Lord, that you may be justified in your words and may overcome when you are judged. That the Lord Himself may be justified. Now the overarching theme of the epistle to the Romans is the justification of sinners. The justification of sinners. We saw that in chapter 1. Paul is writing to these believers in Rome this church that's been formed in the city of Rome, and he's writing to them concerning the gospel of God, which he revealed through the prophets and which is manifested in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. He says he's not ashamed of that gospel, verse 16 of chapter 1, the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God to salvation for everyone who believes. Verse 17, he says, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith, as it is written, the just shall live by faith. So he's talking about undeserving sinners being graciously and mercifully saved from their sins, having their sin and their guilt taken away, and having the perfect righteousness of God in Christ accounted to them, imputed to their account, reckoned to them, so that in the sight of God, they have the righteousness of Christ to give them acceptance with God. And not only to take away God's wrath against their sin, but to give them a right and title to eternal life and blessedness in the presence of God. This epistle to the Romans focuses on that subject more than anything. In fact, even when it deals with the need for obedience and sanctification in the Christian life and living a holy life, it uses this doctrine of justification through faith in Christ. God declaring sinners righteous by faith in Christ. He uses that as a basis and as a springboard to then pivot to the personal obedience of the sanctified believer. So the overarching theme of Romans is the justification of sinners. We read it in chapter 3. There is none righteous, no, not one. He describes the sin that is common by nature to the Gentiles, to the Jews, to you, to me, to everyone conceived and born in sin. Then he goes on to say, verse 24, well, verse 23, all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Verse 24, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. So, the justification of sinners. That is at the heart of the Gospel. Christ purchasing, redeeming, being the propitiation, turning away the wrath of God and bringing God's 
pity, propitiation, bringing God's pity and love and acceptance upon undeserving sinners. But in chapter 3, the underlying theme is the justification of God. So the overarching theme of the book, and maybe even in a sense of chapter 3, is the justification of sinners. But the underlying theme of chapter 3 that we just read is the justification of God. Paul declaring God to be righteous. Paul ascribing justice and righteousness to God. In other words, God's merciful saving of people from their sins does not violate His his character. It doesn't violate His justice or His righteousness. It's not unfair. The plan of redemption is not unjust. It's not God hitting the pause button on His attribute of justice and then all of a sudden hitting the play button on His attribute of mercy. That is not, first of all, that's not how God's character works. God is justice. He is love. He is mercy. You can't hit pause on any aspect of God's being because it's just all Him. He would cease to be Himself if He hit the pause button on any of His attributes. But the underlying theme here is declaring God to be just. And you can see these two things brought together in verse 26 to demonstrate at the present time His righteousness or His justice. So through the plan of redemption, He's showing us how just and righteous He is. Some people think of it differently. They say, well, in the plan of salvation, God shows His mercy. Well, that's true. But notice Paul says in the plan of redemption, by actually punishing Jesus on the cross, and He pays the price for our sins, and He satisfies the just penalty that we deserve, he says that demonstrates at the present time His righteousness. That He's not cutting corners. That He's not sweeping it under the rug. That He is righteous and just. It demonstrates that. And why does it demonstrate that? That He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Christ. These two things are not contradictory. God's justice and God's mercy. He is just, and He is the merciful justifier who declares sinners righteous in Christ. Now, in the opening verses of chapter 3, Paul is dealing with objections to this. He's dealing with these unconverted Pharisees who are saying, look, if your gospel that you've declared is true, then it undermines and undercuts the faithfulness of God, the righteousness of God, and the truth of God. Notice verse 3. If what Paul is saying is true, and some of these circumcised covenant members, Old Testament Jews, right, in the synagogue, if, if these people don't believe, and then they're sent to hell for their unbelief, will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect? So the faithfulness of God is at stake. Verse 5, but if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, this is a claim that Paul's making, we'll get into it in a moment, but Paul, if what you're saying is true, is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. In other words, this is a sort of humanistic, human way of thinking. Is God unjust? Paul, what you're saying makes God unjust. Verse 7, for if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory, why am I also still judged as a sinner? In other words, the truth of God is now being questioned. 
His truth, His righteousness, His faithfulness. So Paul, in order to point us to the justification of ourselves through Christ, has to give us this underlying basis, this foundation. God is not just the justifier of believers. He's just and the justifier. So he lays that foundation. Justifying God. Declaring God to be righteous. Even as David himself says that you may be justified in your words. Now my desire here this morning is that every person here, if you're not already justified through the blood of Christ, you ha- if you haven't already put your trust in Christ and confessed your sin, your unworthiness, and completely devoted yourself and cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ, if you haven't done that and received justification and acceptance with God, my desire is that you may be justified. But in order that you may be justified, we need to understand what David is saying and what Paul is saying when they speak of God in these terms, that He may be justified. Because if God is not just, then He's not the justifier of anyone or anything. I mean, if God is unjust and unfair and double-dealing and doesn't, doesn't perfectly keep His own standard of justice, if He's not a perfectly just and holy God, then who gives a rip about what pronouncement He makes about you? He's not God. If He's not righteous and He's not just and He's not faithful and He's not true... What kind of God is He? He's not God at all. And so if He declares you righteous, who cares? The only God whose justification of a sinner is valuable or meaningful in any sense is a God who is just and righteous and faithful and true as we know the true God is. Now everything God does is just. By definition, He's the standard of justice. His character is the standard of justice. There's no abstract standard of justice that God has to measure up to. God Himself in His being is righteousness. He is justice. And so by definition, everything that He does is just. And that includes His dealings with sinners. Whether we think of salvation or damnation, both of these are just. Both of these are by the book. Both of these are in perfect keeping with God's just and holy character. Everything He does is just, whether it be salvation or damnation. We can look at our chapter and think of salvation. I've already mentioned this, so we won't spend too much time on it. But notice verse 21. He's making the point that God freely, graciously saving sinners and giving them eternal life is done in a just and righteous way. In fact, His favorite way of speaking about the gospel is calling it the righteousness of God. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. So he's saying you can be righteous as a gift from God, not by keeping the law, because no one is righteous according to that standard. If you think you're perfectly righteous according to the Ten Commandments, Read chapter 3, verses 10 through 18, and you'll see the real character of your life, that you're headed for hell, that you've sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So you're not going to get to heaven by your own good works, your own obedience to God, so on and so forth. It's apart from the law, but in fact, if you read the law and the prophets and the Old Testament, you'll find that that's exactly what the Old Testament was teaching all along. 
That there is no one who does not sin, as Solomon says. That we're all sinners. That we need to look to the Lord, our righteousness. That's the whole point of the Old Testament. So he says this righteousness of God, verse 22, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. So he's saying whether you're Jew, whether you're Greek, whether you're male, female, whatever class, position in society that you have, if you confess your sins and believe on Christ, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. doesn't matter about all of these differences. Fundamentally, we're all the same. We're all sinners. And we all need the same salvation through the same Savior, even Christ. And he goes on to say that the way in which Christ saves us, verse 24, is through redemption. Redemption. That means there's a price. You're enslaved to sin. You're enslaved to the guilt and the influence, the bondage, the power of sin. The wages of sin is death. Sin is your master. And it always pays the minimum wage. And you're headed for hell. But he's saying that there's a redemption price and you've been bought with a price if you're a Christian. That price has been paid. Jesus, in fact, not only paid it all, He paid far more than would have been necessary because as as wicked as your sins are, there is nothing more valuable than the infinite Son of God being offered up on Calvary's cross. The Lord Jesus Christ could have purchased a thousand worlds with His perfect obedience and with the perfect infinite dignity of His person. He could have purchased 10,000, a million times more people than He purchased in terms of God's elective purpose. But the fact of the matter is, He paid it. He paid it, so it's just. God didn't just look the other way. But this forgiveness is a forgiveness that was purchased. It's free for you, but it wasn't free for Jesus. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He cries out on the cross. Free for you. Justified freely by His grace. But Jesus had to pay to the last drop. And he says, verse 25, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood. This is the same word that's used for the mercy seat in the Old Testament. Propitiation. And it refers to, as I said earlier, turning away God's wrath and obtaining God's favor. And there's nothing worse than the wrath of God and there's nothing better than the favor of God. That He looks upon you with delight and favor and even where you've sinned, rather than it stirring up His infinite wrath, instead it it stirs up His sympathy, His love, his, His desire to liberate you from that sin that entangles you. That's propitiation. And Jesus paid the redemption price. He suffered the penalty so that God's wrath is satisfied. It is finished. It's it's turned away. And now, God's favor, God's love is poured out upon His people. By His blood. Sin deserves death. Jesus shed His blood. The blood Without the, remission, without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sins. And it's through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. My friends, why did God put His Son through that agony? Obviously, Jesus voluntarily went to the cross, but why? Why did God send His Son to suffer? When you read through the Gospels and you see in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus 
as it were, looking into that cup of wrath and saying, as he's sweating drops of blood, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. This is the infinite Son of God trembling at the thought of the infinite wrath of a holy God that He would be sustaining at the cross. And it made Him sorrowful even unto death. And you can read the emotional trauma that Jesus experienced in His humanity all throughout the book of Psalms. But the fact is, God did that to show that He really does mean business about sin. He really is holy. He really is just. He does not merely remit sin willy-nilly. In fact, when He revealed His name to Moses, I mentioned that earlier in the service, in Exodus 34, we're told that God is merciful and gracious, but also at the same time, He doesn't pardon sin. In other words, He doesn't just look the other way when it comes to sin, but he, he, He punishes the guilty. And in this case, He punished them in their substitute, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it demonstrates verse 26, uh, or rather verse 25, it demonstrates His righteousness because in His forbearance, God had passed over the sins that were previously committed. So Abraham believed God and it was credited to him unto righteousness. He was justified through faith in Christ who was His descendant, Christ who was yet to come. How was Abraham justified by faith in a Christ who had not yet come? Well, Paul says here that when Christ died on the cross and finished the work of redemption, that it, it really imputes that righteousness in all directions. So that when Abraham believed, God credited him that righteousness in anticipation of the work of Christ. And when you and I believe, if there's somebody here today who walked into this building not right with God, but now they confess their sins, they believe on Christ, at that moment in which they believe, the righteousness that Christ accomplished at the cross is imputed to their account. Though it's 2,000 years later, doesn't matter. God imputes it to their account. Forwards, backwards, even the centurion at the cross while Jesus is declaring it is finished, he believes and he declares that Jesus is righteous. He justifies Jesus. This was a righteous man. And this is the Son of God. And he is justified at that moment. So whether it's at the time, whether it's before, whether it's after, it doesn't matter. God is showing that every person who's ever been justified through faith in Christ, past, present, or future, that it's been paid for. And in a sense, the reason God can justify Abraham is very simple, that Jesus from all eternity, in what we call the covenant of redemption, but Jesus from all eternity agreed to be the Savior. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit from all eternity decreed this plan of redemption. And so because of that eternal covenant of redemption, because of that eternal plan in which the Son of God was on record, He, as it were, signed the mortgage and God's people, when they were saved in the Old Testament, took possession of those benefits even though they hadn't been paid for. You know yourself, if you buy a house, you sign the mortgage, you take possession of the house. But it's really owned by the bank until you've paid the last penny. But you're still living in it. You call it your house. Very similar with the Old Testament. God knows that Jesus is good for it. If He signs in the covenant of redemption from all eternity, 
God knows that He's good for it even if He hasn't paid it yet. And so the Old Testament saints get to live in the house. They get to enjoy the benefits. And, and how much greater now that that payment has been finished. It demonstrates God's perfect righteousness. That He's not just a justifier of sinners, but that He is just in doing so. But it's also the case that God condemning and judging sinners is just. And in the same way that you have some people that view salvation as unjust because mercy and justice are somehow contradictory, that false idea, in the same way you have people who object that God's judgment in damning sinners for their sins, that that is unjust. That's very common. Uh, In fact, in dealing with the Gentiles, Paul had to address this very concern back in chapter 1, verse 20. Uh, Because somebody might say, well, the Gentiles, they didn't have the Scriptures, they, they didn't know how can they be held accountable. And Paul says, yes, they're accountable. They're without excuse because they've had the revelation of God's character in the created world through creation and conscience, and the law of God, the work of the law is written on their hearts. So they're without excuse in suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. The wrath of God is revealed, it applies to them, and God is not unjust in pouring out wrath upon people who have never read a Bible. But in this case, chapter 2 and chapter 3, we're dealing with the unconverted Jews who are saying, It's unjust for us to be brought up on charges. It's unjust for us to be condemned and damned by a holy God. And uh, you you can see this sort of objection if you look at uh, verse 3. For what if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God without effect. We've already looked at the faithfulness, the righteousness, the truth of God being questioned in these verses. Paul says, verse 4, no. It doesn't undermine God's faithfulness. It doesn't undermine His truth or His justice. Certainly not. Indeed, let God be true, but every man a liar. In other words, if, if everyone was a liar, if everyone, if every one of the Jews rejected God's covenant of mercy and grace through Christ, if every single one of them rejected it, if everybody, as it were, Paul's preaching in a synagogue, he says, if everyone in this synagogue rejected the Gospel, that would not detract one ounce, one iota from God's faithfulness, God's righteousness, God's truth. And, and if if believing what God says puts you at odds with every other person in the room, every other person in the country, if, if it's just God saying it and everybody else disagrees, guess what? God is true and everybody else is a liar. That's how true and righteous and faithful God is. If some did not believe and they go to hell, guess what? They deserved it because God is just and holy and faithful in every single thing that He does. In fact, when He brings us up before the judgment seat, verse 19, He says midway through the verse, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world become guilty before God. Every mouth, every objection Every rebellious thought of opposition against God is silenced on the day of judgment when He brings out the evidence, when He opens the books, when He shows the unbelief, the disobedience, the rejected privileges, 
the, the truth suppressed in unrighteousness, whether the truth of creation or the truth of the Bible, whether it be this very sermon itself, if you don't believe in Christ, it's all going to be brought out and it will silence everyone because God has created within man a conscience. And that conscience will be satisfied with the evidence on Judgment Day. And my friends, as, as many expositors have said, when the Bible talks about the worm that does not die in hell, uh, many have said that that worm that does not die, figuratively speaking, is the human conscience that just continues to eat away and to, to condemn the sinner in hell. You missed your opportunity. You rejected the privileges. You suppressed the truth. You sinned. You violated what you knew to be true. You violated what God has commanded. And you know yourself when you have regret, when you know you've done wrong, just how miserable it can be to have that type of conscience, an evil conscience. Well, that conscience right now, if you're outside of Christ, is relatively, in some ways, asleep compared to what it's going to be on Judgment Day. Uh, it, it, and you're not going to be able to hit the mute button. And you're not going to be able to lock your conscience in the broom closet like you do today. There won't be these recreations and these opportunities to get those things out of your thoughts, out of your mind. That conscience will be empowered like never before the moment you enter into a lost eternity. And it will never be silenced but it will silence you on the day of judgment. So these things, Paul says, these things demonstrate God's righteousness in salvation and damnation. And therefore, neither the righteousness nor the reputation of God hinges on whether He chooses to justly save a sinner or to justly condemn a sinner. Let me say that again. Neither the righteousness nor the reputation of God hinges upon whether He chooses to justly save or justly condemn a sinner. Humanism tells us that man is the measure of all things and God is really great because He's saving people. My friends, God's greatness, His goodness, His reputation, His righteousness, even His love and compassion does not depend upon Him saving you. If that was the case then His entire being would depend upon you. Look, friends, He didn't even have to create the world, let alone save sinners that inhabit the world. His righteousness and reputation is not dependent upon whether He chooses to save you or not. His justice is manifested in both salvation and damnation. He didn't save any of the demons. Does it bring Him any less glory? Think about it. The angels who didn't sin. When the demons are cast into hell, into the lake of fire, the angels will be singing praise to God's justice and righteousness. Do you think they'd be singing anything else if you or I were cast into the place prepared for the devil and his angels as wicked, miserable sinners against God, rebels against the King of Kings? My friends, they would sing with just as much uh, passion in giving glory to the justice of God. If we deny that, we're saying God's goodness, God's, God's attractiveness, His beauty, whatever you want to say, His nature is based upon Him showing kindness to us. That is not the case. He's not kind because He saves sinners. He saves sinners because He's kind. And in fact, in the Scriptures, when Jesus comes at the last day to judge the world, 
His glory is manifested in both judgment and mercy. Matthew 16, 27. Let me just read a couple of these. For the Son of Man will come in the glory of His Father with His angels, and then He will reward each according to His works. So He's glorified just in being just, as it were. Whether, whether that means rewarding you as someone who has been purchased by the work of Christ and Christ's works are upon you and you're saved and you go to heaven because of those works or whether you're damned to hell because of your sinful works, at the end of the day, He is glorious in both cases. Matthew 25, verse 31. When the Son of Man comes in His glory with the holy angels with Him, then He will sit on the throne of His glory. And we're told that all the nations will be gathered before Him and He'll separate them one from another as a shepherd divides His sheep from the goats. Sheep, goats, in both cases. He's glorious. He's righteous. He is blessed. And so many other proof texts could be used, but we'll we'll leave it there and move on. God's eternal good pleasure to save His elect is totally free and voluntary. God doesn't have to save anyone. It's His eternal good pleasure to save His elect, and that is totally free and voluntary and cannot possibly add to His infinite glory and blessedness. God's blessedness, His delight, flows from Himself because He's God. As our larger catechism says, God is a spirit in and of Himself, infinite in being, infinite in glory, in blessedness, in perfection. So His glory and His blessedness flow from Himself within the the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, there's perfect joy, perfect blessedness. You can't add to it. You can't subtract from it. There's perfect glory and a perfect recognition of that glory within the three persons of the Trinity loving and appreciating one another. There is perfect glory and blessedness. You can't add from it. You can't subtract from it. Otherwise, God would not be God. As Romans 11.35 says, or who has first given to Him and it shall be repaid to Him. God doesn't depend upon us for anything. And that's humbling, friends. God saving me, God saving you is completely out of His own good pleasure. He doesn't need to do it. He doesn't need it to look good. He looks as good as He's going to look. He does it out of His free love. It's really an, an unsolved mystery. Why does God love unlovable sinners? Why does He love those who hate Him and sin against Him? Why does He, you know, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us? I don't know. We can't know. But He does. And He offers that remarkable grace and mercy through Christ to everyone who hears the Gospel. And 2 Corinthians 5 says that not only is He offering Christ, He's pleading with sinners through His ministers. When the Gospel is proclaimed, when Gospel promises are read and heard and proclaimed, we're told that God, through Christ, is pleading with sinners. And you say, well, He's pleading because there's something in it for Him. He's desperate. He needs people to... you know. No, He doesn't. He has everything that He needs in Himself. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's nothing you can add. And Christ is not saying, come unto Me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, because there's something in it for Me. 
Does he delight in his bride, the church? Yes. Because she adds something to him? No. It's a free love. It's a voluntary love. And that is humbling. God would be just as glorious and holy and loving if He had saved nobody. He raised up Pharaoh to demonstrate His justice and power. Romans 9.15 He raised up Pharaoh and He was glorified in it. Now, are we saying that salvation does not bring glory to God in some sense? No, we're not saying that because Ephesians 1. Ephesians 1 verse 6 Salvation is to the praise of the glory of His grace by which He made us accepted in the Beloved. Verse 14, to the praise of His glory. Now what does it mean? What does it mean when the salvation that God accomplishes through Christ is to the praise of His glory? That it gives Him glory. That we as His saints glorify Him on account of the salvation that He's bestowed upon us. What does that mean? It does not mean that we're adding to His infinite glory. How could a limited, finite creature saying, God be glorified, how could that add to the infinite glory of God? The finite cannot add to the infinite. God has all glory. But what it does do is it enables us to have the privilege of joining with God and with the angels in ascribing glory to God, which is our chief end as our children are learning in their catechism class. Man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy Him forever. Not that God needs the glory, that it adds to His glory, but it ascribes Him glory. It recognizes who He is and what He has done. And my friends, that's not a benefit to God. That's a benefit to you and to me if we have the privilege of, of fulfilling that chief end. Because when we glorify God, we'll find that we enjoy God. Indeed, you have people today who have no interest in Jesus Christ or in the Bible or in salvation, but a family member dies and you go to the funeral and they talk about, uh, in some cases, they talk about heaven. And you, know, you could have a, maybe a, a person who's not even a religious leader, but they get up and they give a speech about heaven. People want to go to heaven. You go door to door and ask people, if you died today, would you go to heaven? Many people say yes. But what is heaven? Heaven is an eternal worship service. It's many things, but it's that. It's constantly reflecting and ascribing God's glory, God's justice. It's an eternal justification of God. God is righteous. God is holy. God is glorious. God is merciful. And, and, and that's, that's what heaven is. If we don't enjoy glorifying God on earth, what makes you think we're going to go to a place, what makes you think that you're going to inhabit a place for all eternity where your chief end is to glorify and enjoy God? If you don't do it now, what makes you think you'll be doing it for eternity? If you're grumbling and bitter and objecting to the Gospel now, that's a sign that you're going to be grumbling and bitter and crying out against God in hell for eternity. The Jewish Pharisees stubbornly objected to Paul's teaching here. They, they refused to accept this humbling idea that they had to be saved in order for God to be faithful and just and true. They rejected that. They didn't want to hear that. They, they objected on three grounds. First, they said it makes God a liar. 
verses 3 and 4. It makes God a liar. What if some did not believe? Will their unbelief make the faithfulness of God of none effect? You see, these people thought that circumcision guaranteed salvation. We're members of the visible covenant community. We're the seed of Abraham. And we could go to many passages in the Old Testament. Isaiah 45.25, Isaiah 46.13. Many prophecies that say that Israel will be saved and Israel will be justified. And Israel will receive God's saving righteousness. In many cases, and they say, well, that just is a guarantee that I will be saved because I'm a a son of Abraham. I'm an Israelite. Uh, I'm, as Paul says, a, a Hebrew of Hebrews. But you see, that's not the case. If it were the case, you're right. If God promised to save every member of the visible church in the Old and New Testament, and then some of them refused to believe and went to hell, you'd be right. That would make God a liar. But God never promised that. When John the Baptist preached repentance in Luke 3, he says the axe is laid at the root of the trees. Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. And don't say to yourselves that I'm a child of Abraham. God can raise up children for Abraham out of a pile of stones. Paul says not all Israel is of Israel. Not every baptized person is saved. Not everybody who comes to the Lord's table is saved apart from faith. What if some did not believe? What if some proved unfaithful? What if some in their profession of faith lied against the truth of God? Well, let God be true and every man a liar so that when He judges them at the last day and opens the books and shows them to be unconverted and to be unrighteous, He will be justified in His words. He will overcome when He is judged. If you think you're going to outfox God, that somehow you're going to come up with a defense on the day of judgment to get yourself off the hook, sorry, He's going to overcome that objection. Secondly, they said it makes God unjust. Verse 5, if our unrighteousness demonstrates the righteousness of God, what shall we say? Is God unjust who inflicts wrath? I speak as a man. What Paul is saying here is that our unrighteousness on judgment day is going to show that God's judgment is true. Think about that. If God's sending somebody to hell and then he brings out the record of their life and shows their unrighteousness, how they rejected His Gospel, how they despised His covenant and His Word, that's going to make God look good. If God says, you're going to hell, and then He shows the evidence, here, is, here are all the sins you committed, here's your unbelief, here's your disobedience, and so the wages of sin is death, your sin actually makes God look good. And a humanistic outlook says, ah, I don't like that. That's not right. That's not right. My sin should be able to in some way disenfranchise God. My sin should be able to hurt God, to reduce His glory, uh, to to rain on His parade. My sin, if I'm going to be sent to hell, at least my sin can make a dent in the glory and blessedness of God. I think Satan probably thinks that way. It's not just a human, it's a demonic way of thinking. But you're fighting a losing battle because God works all things together for good. And though we take no pleasure, and God takes no pleasure in the death of the wicked, everyone who rejects His gospel ultimately does so in keeping with His eternal plan. 
There's nobody he planned to save that doesn't ultimately come to salvation. Even the devil with his greatest effort to overturn God's plan of redemption in crucifying the Son of God, God actually used that greatest act of rebellion and and turned it as the greatest act of good that has ever been accomplished in human history. So at the end of the day, if you think your sin is in any way hurting God, harming God, inhibiting what God is doing in the world, think again. Stop flattering yourself. God is going to accomplish His purposes. And if you go to heaven or hell, it's not going to stop God from accomplishing His eternal plan. Again, this is humbling. It's humbling. Read Job 35. This very same teaching comes out of Job 35. Their third objection, and we're hastening to a conclusion, but the third objection, they say it undermines biblical ethics. Verse 7, if the truth of God has increased through my lie to His glory again, ah, they're just not comfortable with that. My lie increases and enhances the glory of God's truth. Why am I also still judged as a sinner? In other words, if what I'm doing is producing good results, then why am I being judged as a sinner? Why not say, let us do evil that good may come? So if my sin glorifies God, why can't I just live in sin? If the devil's rebellion against God brings glory to God, and if Judas betraying Christ leads to eternal redemption for the people of God. Why is he judged for sin? Why not be exalted? Why not, why not bring Judas into heaven? If our sin highlights God's righteousness, then why not do evil that good may come? This is not fair. God is punishing things that bring about a good result. And that type of teaching, Paul, is going to undermine biblical ethics. No. I'll tell you what's going to undermine. It's going to undermine a utilitarian, pragmatic view of ethics. Right? The biblical view of ethics is we do what's right because God has commanded it and it reflects His character. We don't do what is right because we think it's going to bring about this or that consequence. My friends, duty is ours. The consequences are His. So if we adopt a utilitarian, do it because it works, pragmatic, do it because it's convenient kind of ethic, yes, it's going to be overturned by what Paul is saying here. Why is it going to be overturned? Because God works everything for good, friends. And if if you think, well, I'm living in sin, but God's working it for good, you're abusing this doctrine. You're abusing this. Oh, I'm, I'm... I'm living in sexual sin privately you know, on my computer and on my phone, but you know what? God's using it to humble me. That's the devil's logic. That's demonic Calvinism. Don't listen to that. Do what's right because it's right. When God says He works all things for good, that doesn't mean... That means His, his good purposes for those who love Him and th- those who are called according to His purpose. It doesn't mean that your sin won't cause very bad consequences in your life, very unpleasant things in, in your life and the life of those around you. All things for good. Well, be careful with that. But, but Paul is saying, don't think that your sin can ultimately undermine God's eternal plan. God will be justified. And my friends, if you would be justified today, you have to justify God. That's what Paul is saying. 
He's saying these Pharisees couldn't be justified themselves because they wouldn't justify God. They wouldn't look at God's law and say, righteous, guilty as charged. They wouldn't look at God's judgment and say, that's exactly what I deserve. They wouldn't look at God's Savior and say, truly this was a righteous man. There is no fault in him. They look at God's gospel. The true Christian justifies God in the gospel and says, God justifies the chief of sinners. God justifies a person who has harmed me, who has offended me, who has made my life miserable. God justifies the the heathen, the harlot, the tax collector, the person that has in, in so many ways been the bane of my existence. God forgives them. God justifies them. Blessed be His name. Blessed be His name. Are there people in your life that you don't want to be saved? That in the back of your mind, it's comforting to know, well, this person's going to get what's coming to them. And if God saved them, would you be like Jonah, complaining on the hillside, God, why didn't you destroy the Ninevites? Even Christians can fall into this. But we need to justify God. We need to look at His Gospel, His mercy, and say it's right, it's good, there's no fault in it. Luke chapter 7, verse 29 and following, it says the Pharisees, unlike the, 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 the sinners and the harlots, they refused to justify God. They refused to justify God. And we justify God by confessing our sins. Whatever sins the Holy Spirit is convicting you of through the Word of God today, whether it be a sin of your heart in despising God and prioritizing your own worldly estate, your own worldly desires, whether it's your words, the way you speak to people. Read the passage that we read in Romans 3, verse 10 and following. The poison of asps is under your lips, full of cursing and bitterness. Whatever it may be, you need to glorify God and confess your sins. And you need to justify God and receive His Son. If you refuse Christ today, if you say, I will go on in my sin and I'm not interested in Christ and I'm not going to believe in Him and I'm not going to receive Him and I have no desire to be righteous in God's sight in and through Him, my friend, you're not just not believing, you are condemning Almighty God. You're condemning Him. You're rejecting Him. You're saying, I will have none of Him. Psalm 81. And yet He says, to you in grace, open wide your mouth and I will fill it. Those who hunger and thirst for this righteousness will be filled, will be forgiven, will be clothed, will be acceptable in the sight of Almighty God. Let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give thanks for Your law. It is holy, just, and good. And the end thereof is the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and also imparted to us through the work of sanctification. We pray that You would enable us not to undermine the law, but to establish it. That You would write it upon our hearts to humble us and point us to Christ day after day after day. And that You would write it on our hearts that we may walk in it and through it in the light of Jesus Christ. We pray in His name. Amen.